up for Liz. She does a great job. She's been a huge help the last several months here uh, at the church in the office, overseeing our finances um, and women's ministry and many, many other I think at the bottom of her job description, it just says at all. So like whatever I tell her, hey, I need you to do this, she just does. So um, I just appreciate her, appreciate her willingness to, to come up here. It's not always easy to get in front of people uh, and, and speak. So um, next week, I'm going to just call someone random from... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you guys would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Uh, for those of you who are online or if I have not had an opportunity to connect with you, my name is Joshua Kale. I'm the lead pastor here at TWC and we are excited that you've joined uh, us today. We're in our second week of our missions series called Engage, uh, Embracing the Journey of Discipleship. Uh, so, but before we, before we get into this, I just have a question. I need a show of hands. I need a little bit of participation uh, from the group this morning. Um, how many of you, by showing me, uh, by show of hands, have a cell phone? Okay, I think every single hand is up here. Um, now, I want you to know uh, that you have your cell phone thanks to a man by the name of Martin Cooper. He worked for the company uh, Motorola, and he started the cell phone movement in the early 80s. When they first came out, they looked vastly different. If you guys would, check out uh, those cell phones, how they've progressed over time. I don't even know why someone would carry that first one. Um, but they did. People here rejected the thought and the idea that we would want to carry around this kind of contraption. But over time, cell phones have changed in, in shape and size. They've become more effective. And owning one uh, did not require you to take out a second mortgage on your home. Now, fast forward 38 years into the future, and there are people all over the world that own a cell phone. There are even people in third world countries that own cell phones. I was looking at some statistical data this week and found that there are nearly 2 billion people in the outer parts of India that have cell phones. I was, my mind was completely blown. Cell phones right now are the number one piece of communication equipment for technology. And of course, um, there are those who still refuse to have one. Uh, but I ran into a Mennonite a couple of weeks ago, and they had a cell phone. So if you don't have one, get one. Um, now, um, then there are those who are completely stuck in the Stone Age, and I mean those who don't have an iPhone. Um, <laughs> but here is something that is totally mind-blowing. That in just 38 years, the world has been totally impacted and in so many ways revolutionized by a small electronic device. Completely revolutionized. And yet there is a sad reality for us here today that ensues. That after 2,000 years following the resurrection of Christ, there are people who still have not heard the gospel message. I'm going to say it again. That after 2,000 years, there are still people who have not heard the gospel message. And many Christians, which is a sad reality, many Christians tend to know more about how their cell phone works than they do about the most powerful, life-transforming message the world has ever known. 
It's sad but true that some believers probably have a better relationship with their cell phone than they do with Christ. Technology is wonderful, church, so please don't hear, uh, don't hear me say that it's not. There are people online watching right now. We have the capability to record the service and reach people who are unable to be here. I believe technology can be used for good. Technology is wonderful and it's powerful, but it's not a substitute for a personal and active relationship with God. Knowing Christ is not merely something that we just read about or we study. You can't just download Jesus as an add-on. There is no Jesus app that you just put on your phone and all of a sudden you have a right standing relationship with him. You can't just text in your worship on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Church, being a Christian and being a part of the church, the capital C church, requires us to be personally engaged in the movement. Imagine for just a moment, how many of you like the, the spring and the summer? How many of you like going to, um, to the beach or like to go fishing? You like to be on the water. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, in, in Florida where we lived, there were some of the most beautiful beaches uh, that I had ever seen. I don't like the beach because they're dirty uh, and there are people there. But... Um, there are some beautiful beaches to watch the sun rise or to watch the sun set. And I was just having this thought the other day. Imagine with me for just a moment that you're, you're out for the day and you're on the water on a boat. You're enjoying your time. You see somebody who appears to be struggling to swim to the point where they're almost drowning. And so you think to yourself, I better go help them. And so you begin to navigate your boat closer to this person. And you call out from a distance and you say, hey, do you need help? When clearly they need help. Of course they do. So what happens next is you decide that you're going to grab the manual out of the compartment in your boat that says how to swim and why swimming in a lake without a life jacket could cost you your life. And you take that manual and you throw it out to that person with the expectation that they're going to learn it, they're going to read it, and then they're going to put it into good use. You yell out from your boat, read this and I'll be praying for you. Sadly, church, that's how many of us tend to be when it comes to helping people understand the gospel. We throw a, a track at them. We, we confront them with foreign truths. We give them a few passages of scripture. We tell them what they already know, that they're in trouble and that they need help. Do you know what that person truly needs? is not only the life-changing message of the gospel, but they need a messenger whose life has been changed by that gospel. A witness, so to speak, who personally engages with them, who helps them walk through their struggles. Someone who loves them, but someone who leads them back to the Savior. Time and time and time again. I want us to pick back up for just a moment in the book of Acts chapter 1. In the book of Acts chapter 1. We are told and we learned last week that we must be like the witnesses that were in this text. People who were gripped by the message, who in turn took that message, joined the movement, and they engaged. 
becoming messengers of the gospel. Now, I'm just going to reread those 11 verses that we tackled last week because we're, gonna, we're just going to linger here. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, and I want to stop right there for just a moment. For just a moment, I want, I've had some questions over the week. Why was this book written to a man that we know nothing about? Who is Theophilus here in the text? Well, it's, it's actually, to, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, we're unsure. There are two books in which Luke wrote that address this man, and we do not know why. He is addressed essentially as your honor or someone who would have been a place of authority in the Roman government, but we don't know what place he took. All we know is that this man was probably not a believer, and Luke was attempting to share the gospel with him through his writings. So, I want us to just continue on. So in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all of the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Remember that. It says, until the day when he was taken up, and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, and he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from, from now. And so when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, um, and he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, right now, Lord, and we ask of you to re-illuminate this passage of Scripture. I know we studied and looked at it last week, but God, there's more truth here for us to unpack. God, help us to see that we need to, to be more engaged, that we, we need to give up, we need to yield to the Spirit's power and work in our lives. God, illuminate uh, these truths for us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. The early church was not only gripped by the message of the gospel, they were witnesses. We saw this last week as we began to unpack this. They were captured. They were totally changed and transformed by the gospel. There was something else, though, of great significance that we did not cover last week. The early church, and it's the first thing I need you to see this morning, is that the early church was guided by the Holy Spirit. The church was guided by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you look at these men and their backgrounds, you probably would have never found a more ill-equipped and unqualified group to lead such an incredible and important assignment. But notice, there are several key phrases here that we must give insight to. The first, right out of the gate, 
Luke says in verse number two, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit and to the apostles, he said he presented. Sorry, let's go back to verse one. In the, the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with, what did he say? All that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. Meaning that everything that Jesus did was done in his physical body and that's why they were there. I mentioned last week that we needed to circle, highlight, star, do something with the word witnesses in our Bible. The reason for that is because Acts is like Luke part two. It's a continuation of what Luke was already writing about in his gospel. Luke said Jesus began his work and was working. And in Acts there was a continuation, but it was different. Something had changed, it shifted. In the four gospels we see that Jesus completed the work that God called him to do in his physical body. But now through the spiritual body of the church his work was about to continue on and it's not done yet. Christ's work of redemption in this place was completed but the church's work of evangelism was just starting. And it's not over. It is not over. Jesus is not asking us church to do the work for him. I'm going to say it again. Jesus is not asking us to do the work for him, but rather to join him in the work, but rather to join him, to engage and become a part of the movement. Jesus began the work, the church continues. The second thing I need us to see appears in verse... Let's go to verse number... Six, And so when they had come together, no, go to verse number four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. I want you to underline that phrase in your Bible, but to wait. Underline it, highlight it, star it, do something, wait. Why? Why would that be in the Bible? Why would Jesus tell them to wait? Not only that, how hard must it have been for the disciples to have been equipped for three years by Christ and he's telling them, I'm going to be leaving you, but I don't want you to go anywhere. Why? We're ready. We're ready, Lord. We're ready to go out and to share the gospel with people. We have work to do. Let's, let's go. Let's go. There's something that we need to grasp here, though. Something that so many people miss is that Jesus was showing them that the work was far greater than anything that they would be able to accomplish by their own power. The work that he would do through them would come only by impartation of the Spirit. The Spirit must give power to them to proclaim the gospel, just like he does today. And as believers yielded themselves and surrendered their lives, they were greatly used to impact people with the gospel. In fact, if you were to continue reading through the book of Acts, you get an overwhelming sense that the church was totally dependent upon the guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But what's so intriguing to me, what's so intriguing to me about this book in the New Testament was that it has no real ending it's, it's almost as like there's a cliffhanger, like there's supposed to be more, like waiting to, be, to appear, something waiting to be written. You see, the thing was is that the movement was just getting started. It wasn't supposed to end. That's why there is no ending to the book of Luke. We, this church, 
the capital C church is to be continuing on in the movement and carrying out the great commission that was started by these men and women in an upper room as they prayed and Pentecost happened and and the church added and then began to multiply. The ending was that this, the church today, would continue on the work that was started by Christ that led to the apostles and disciples and to the believer now. You know, one of the primary purposes that we've been given the Holy Spirit is that we might testify. The Spirit, one of the Spirit's jobs is to only speak of Jesus. And the power that he instills in us is to testify of this Jesus. The Spirit did so many things in the early church. So many things through the apostles and the disciples. But the primary function was to empower the believers to witness. And to teach and to speak truth and to share their faith and to preach the gospel. But the question before us is not like last week. Last week we looked at whether or not we believed This week, we have to ask the question of, are we yielded to the Spirit's work in our life? Are we yielded to the Spirit's work in our life? Are we guided by Him to share our faith with other people? There are a lot of excuses, though. My 13 years in ministry, I've heard a ton of excuses as to why people don't share the gospel with other people. And I want to I walk us through. Someone once told me about four or five years ago that they don't share the gospel because it's not their gift. It's not their gift. Well, I would agree that there are some that are way better at presenting the gospel. It is every believer's responsibility. Every believer's responsibility is to share the gospel. Just because you don't know everything about the Bible doesn't mean that you don't know some things about the Bible. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we're going to see in just a moment the charge that Peter gave to us as believers to be able to share the hope that we have. I've I've heard someone else say that I witness with my life. I witness with my life. That's great, but you still have to talk. I heard the person say that, and my mind immediately went to me attempting to watch a newscast with the mute button on. Like they're trying to communicate something to me, but I don't know what it is because they're not talking. The Bible tells us how will they know and hear unless they have someone preach to them. But that work, that that word preach there was not meant just for the pastor, for the paid staff. It was for the believer, for the ones who know the truth, the ones who have the truth within them. Which is why 1 Peter said in chapter 3, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you of a reason of hope that's in you with meekness and fear. We were commanded by Peter to the believer to, to share hope, to tell people about where you are and why you're there. I met a man who was a pastor by the name of Mark Deaver several years ago, and he said this, that acts of kindness and good deeds commend the gospel, but glorify God, and they glorify God, but only when the gospel is communicated can it be called evangelism. Only when it's communicated. 
Acts of kindness and and deeds are wonderful, but it is only the word of God that will bring someone to salvation. It is the only, only thing in this life that the Holy Spirit uses to bring a man to the place of surrendering to God, the word of God. Why? Because Jesus himself was the word of God. Because the word of God is the truth. Why do we go back to John chapter 1, the gospel? It starts off by saying, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. So as we read these words here on this page, we are told, not just in John, but in Paul's letter to Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed. Meaning that when we read this, we're reading Jesus on a page. We have truth at our fingertips. I've heard someone tell me before that they didn't have time to share the gospel. Never in 13 years of ministry have I heard a more anemic excuse. Evangelism is living a life with gospel intentionality. Using every single opportunity that we have to present and to share our faith. What about the excuse, well, I feel weird and awkward when I talk to somebody about Jesus. Of course you do. Of course you do. A friend of mine used to say that evangelism is two nervous people talking about Jesus. But I think the message of the gospel is worth a little weirdness, a little awkwardness. I've always wondered though, and as I was putting this together, I was sharing with my wife, I believe it was last night, I always wondered what our excuses would sound like to the apostles of the first century, the people who started the church, the people who were martyred, as we heard last week, for their faith. Could you imagine standing before Thomas who was flayed with spears telling him that you were weirded out by sharing the gospel with someone? Well, great, I got flayed to death with a spear. Could you imagine talking to Paul? Could you imagine as, as he went through everything that you could imagine in his life for the gospel? Could you imagine I've been stoned? I've been beaten multiple times. I've had my flesh ripped from my body. Well, well I just didn't have the time. Could you imagine talking to Peter as he hung upside down on a cross? And you're telling Peter, I just lived the way with my life. People know I'm a Christian, so the way that I I do life should just bring people to them, right? As he was strapped to a cross and had nails driven into his hands and his feet, hung upside down until he died. With all of that being said, there's something very critical, something very important that we must understand, something so overwhelming that churches miss. The work of missions is urgent, but it's not frantic. 
God has nowhere in his word guaranteed a rate of increase or a level of effectiveness. But what you do see in the Bible is that we must be patient, is that we must be diligent, that we must be faithful. That's what you see. Patience, diligence, faithfulness. You know, in our culture, we have this natural affinity uh, to speed, to volume, to programs. And we want to measure everything in terms of success. Every, everything that we do in our culture, we want to know, was it successful? Let me look at all the numbers. And listen, I'm a numbers guy. I look at statistics all week long because I want to know what's going on in our world. I want to know what other churches are experiencing. I want to know what other pastors are seeing and feeling. So I look at numbers and I understand that. But measuring success and sharing the gospel must always be seen through the lens of continued faithfulness to proclaim the message. The reality is that more people will reject Christ than receive him. We're told in scripture, people reject Christ every single day. And according to the Bible, converting people is not within our own power. I have no power to save somebody else. Only the Holy Spirit can bring the person to salvation. And to evangelize does not mean that we win converts, but simply to announce the good news irrespective of the results. We are, to, we are to be sharing the gospel every moment and every opportunity that we have because there are lost and dying people in this world. It's not up to us as to whether or not that person's going to accept. God may be using you to plant the seed. God may be using you to water it. But we're told in the book of John that when that person comes to salvation, we can all, all gather to celebrate together. It doesn't matter what piece you played. It's not about how many crowns that you'll have or how many notches you'll get in your belt because of the people that you led to the Lord. The work of missions is to proclaim the gospel. There was an artist. Um... A Christian rap artist, I believe. Um, who, who used to say this phrase in one of his songs. And he used to say that we win for sharing the truth if hearts get changed. And we win if we're persecuted for Christ's name. And we win if seeds get planted or if they get watered or if they grow. But even if none of those things happen... Would you still be fanatical, though? If none of those things. Do people know that you're fanatical about Christ? Do people know that you live, breathe, and die by the gospel? Do people see that in your life? Do people hear you talking about it with your words? Are you a fanatic? Not a fan, but a fanatic. We have not failed if people are not converted. We fail if we do not faithfully proclaim the gospel over and over and over again. The problem of evangelism plaguing our churches today is that the church is not, uh, it's plaguing us today is that we are in, not in need of new techniques 
We're not in need of, of new programs, but rather it's one of belief in Holy Spirit power. That's why Jesus himself told the disciples in verse number four to wait. To wait. Wait for the power of the Spirit. And guess what happened when they were obedient? Explosions of people came to know Christ. Explosions of people. Do you know in the passage here where it talks about Holy Spirit power, that word power comes from the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get our English word dynamite. There were explosions of people because of the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, through the believers in that day. Now I need us to understand something though. I need us to understand the purpose of this power. The purpose of the Holy Spirit power. They were living in a world where their lives were complete under the control and guidance of the Holy Spirit. That means to be filled. Completely filled means to be in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And that dynamite was not some random explosion or outburst. It didn't cause devastation, but it caused life. It caused brand new life. You hear people in Christian circles often say, man, that was out of control. Or man, that would have been scary for the Holy Spirit to come. For Pentecost, that would have been scary. I would beg to differ. We read this scripture and I see nothing that is out of control. I see everything that is under control by the Spirit himself. It was a targeted, impactful, purposeful, and intentional explosion. And that power that the early church had through the Spirit gave them the capability to do everything far exceeding anything that they could imagine or think would happen because they were obedient. You know, acting out of control does not require power, only energy. But power is always accompanied by truth. It's always accompanied by truth. Our lives need to portray that we're under the control of the Spirit. That we're yielded to Him. That we're filled with Him. And when that happens, the gospel will come out of you. Jesus oozes out of you in everything that you say and everything that you do. Why? Because we can't help. We can't help when we're under the control and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The joyous news will come out of us. We won't be able to hide it. Do you know what the key for successful um, evangelism is in our world today? It, it is not new methods or new programs or reading a lot of books on evangelism. I was at Baker Bookhouse last week with my wife, and in the section that is labeled evangelism, there are like some 68 books on how to evangelize the lost people. And, and I, I picked up a few of them, and in the first five to ten pages of those books, I'm not sure that any of the ones that I picked up mentioned a Bible verse. The most effective way to evangelize people in our culture today is you and I studying our Bibles. 
It's you and I living godly lives, having a love for our church and a passion for the things of Christ. And when we do that, the message of the gospel will come out of us. Our mission is not defined by principles and precepts and priorities, but by the person of Jesus Christ. Several years ago, a pastor said this, that if the Holy Spirit were to depart the church, most things would continue on as normal. And as a pastor, that's a really scary thought. It's a really scary thought because you see in the text here that the early church was so dependent on the Spirit of God. They prayed earnestly and evangelized faithfully until their death. And the world was turned completely upside down. And all they did was follow the truths that they were taught. They didn't do anything with technology. Nothing at all. Could you imagine the early church having cell phones and what they would have done with them? Could you imagine the early church with the internet, with video streaming? What do you think could have happened? Imagine with me for just a moment. But if you jump in our passage down to Acts 1.14, I want you to see something it says, and all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to what, church? They were devoting, in verse number 14, they were devoting themselves to what? Prayer. They were devoting themselves to prayer. It becomes a theme starting in verse number 14 that you see over and over and over again. You ju jump to chapter 2. And you go to verse 42, and it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. You see it again in chapter 5. You see it again in 6. You see it again in 7. You see it in 9 and 10 and 12 and 14 and 18. Over and over and over again, prayer was the centralized theme of the book of Acts. They needed prayer because they needed the Holy, they needed the Holy Spirit. But my fear, my fear today is that we often misuse and misunderstand prayer. Church, I'm going to mess with your theology here for just a moment. And I have a question for you. If God answered all of your prayers from the last year, would you be the only person that truly benefited from it? Would you be the only person that truly benefited? A pastor, friend of mine, asks his church and his church leaders often that if God was to answer every one of your prayers in the last six months, how many people would have been added to the kingdom? You know, so many believers... Pray, and the main subject, and sometimes the only subject of their prayers is themselves. It's a few, Lord, help them. Lord, Lord, bless them. Lord, heal them. And that's about it. Oh, how our prayers must sound to God. My favorite is when people pray, Lord, be with us. He is with us. He is with us. 
Another, another one of my favorites is when people pray to give them traveling mercies. What is that? Where in the Bible does it talk about traveling mercies? More like put on your seatbelt and drive the speed limit and get off your cell phone. That's your traveling mercy. Or, or what about, Lord, help me pass this test? Why, why? Why? How about you study and do the work to pass that test? Or my personal favorite. My personal favorite, Lord, bless this food. As you're eating four slices of pizza or a half-pound burger topped with bacon and cheese, God's not going to bless that. We have so flippantly used our prayer life and abused our prayer life. We pray over everything. Every single thing we pray over. And I'm not saying that prayer is wrong or it's bad, church. But we have abused the greatest privilege in the direct line to our creator. And I wish more people in Christian circles understood what our prayer life could be like. We have a perfect example all throughout the book of Acts, all throughout Corinthians, all throughout Ephesians. Paul over and over and over talked about prayer. He tells us how to come before the throne. And we've, we've, we've solidified all of our prayers and to bless our food. And solidified all of our prayers and to make sure we make it home safely. What if we earnestly prayed like the disciples? What if we earnestly prayed like the apostles? What do you think would happen? Do you know what the culmination of the early church's prayers were to have boldness to proclaim the truth? What if, church? What if? What, what do you think God could do if churches began to utilize the one gift that we've been given to be in contact with God himself? It is a good thing that we are told that the Holy Spirit will utter groanings when we do not know how to pray. Could you imagine thinking right now, think back over every prayer that you've ever prayed that you can remember. Imagine how some of them sounded to God. Scary. That we could ask of anything and we're asking him to bless our cheeseburger. When the early church prayed for boldness, it produced a movement. A movement that is still happening today. And there's a challenge for us, church, to continue on in that movement. There's, there's a challenge that we've been given and we need to continue on with the mission. We have the same direct line to God that the apostles did. So my question in closing today is this, are you going to engage in the movement? Are you going to join the mission? You know what happens when, when churches lose their evangelistic zeal? They start stagnating and then they die. Thousands of churches 
all around America are closing their doors, not just because of COVID, not just because of financial hardship, because churches have become so inward focused. They've forgotten what it means to to make disciples. That's why one of the reasons this month is, is going to start from this point forward becoming an important part of our church. That's why we're asking you as believers, as attenders here, to get involved, to be engaged, to give to the work here. Because we, we want God's kingdom to be furthered, not for the sake of our name, but for the sake of His. And if our church is not aligning with Scripture, then every program and every new piece of technology and every sermon and every class and every Bible study is for naught. God has called us as a body for such a time as this to share the gospel to be a light in this community to share hope even when it's hard even when it's painful even when you don't know where you're going to go next even when you can't see the way We're guided by scripture to remain faithful. I believe the psalmist had it right when he said, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The lighted path of God's word tells us to remain faithful, to be patient, but be diligent, to engage and point people through grace and love and mercy, back to the Father. Church, are you ready to engage in the mission? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We come to you in this place and we we thank you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for these, these challenges. God, we, we are asking right now as a church for boldness. We're asking for gospel opportunities. We're asking for people to, to come to us because they see something different about us and they want to know why we have hope and joy and peace and patience in our lives. How can we be the gentle and giving people? God, it's only through you and your power. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you here. You're welcome in this place. God, use, use us. We are, we're ready and willing, Lord. I, I pray, Lord, that we would have the heart of Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, send me. Send me. God, use us to, 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 to share the truth, to, to bind up the brokenhearted. To preach good news to the poor. God, give us your power. 
Give us your strength. Give us courage and boldness as we depart from here. And bring us, bring us back to be refreshed, to go right back out again to do more work for the gospel's sake, for your kingdom, for your name. God, I pray that you would be magnified and glorified in this place and in our lives as we depart from here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.